Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast. how you doing there it's podcast time hope you're enjoying august the summer time off all that sort of good stuff we're bringing you different conversations this august one of the conversations i want to bring you is a conversation i had a fantastic one with Professor Neil Ferguson, the Scottish historian, all around good egg, a most amazing historian. And this is about his new book, which is called The Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Fascinating tour de force going around the world of economics, politics, sociology, technology, all sorts of great stuff, all about the politics of the pandemic, catastrophe, and how it's all going to play out. It's a fascinating conversation. I enjoyed it because myself and Neil get on very well. Hope you enjoy it too. Neil Ferguson, how are you? I'm very well, David. It's it's a bright and early morning here in California. So I'm, yeah, but bit bleary-eyed and uh, and fending off small boys well, who we always like to burst that. in at these moments. I, I, loved, I loved your sort of sensitive side, the side we never see. We don't see enough of that, Neil. Yeah, I think maybe I should just bring my wee boys into all these interviews and have them take the difficult questions. I think my nine-year-old would actually do better than me. People all melt and say, look at that Neil Ferguson. We never knew. We never knew yeah. this little paternal softy side to him. Listen. You know, David, I think this is a turning point in my life. We are actually going to go into the sensitive phase, the loving phase of my career. <laughs> it's Great a, idea. It's a tipping point. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a swerve in midlife, a swerve in midlife. This is where the Irish have the edge over the Scots because we never consider that possibility. I mean, nobody in Glasgow ever says, maybe tonight I'll show my sensitive side. <laughs> <laughs> See how that goes. <laughs> listen, we'll bring you in. We'll bring you in. And listen, congratulations on Rangers one in a row. It's great to see you're on a roll now. Well, you know, the thing is, I'm a Partick Thistle fan. So, because in Glasgow, there are, there, are, there are not just two teams. I mean, there's the Catholic team, there's the Protestant team, but don't forget the atheist team, Thistle. And of course, if you're not an atheist, when you start supporting Partick Thistle, you soon will be. This was the joke <laughs> of my childhood. Because they're so awful. Because there can't be a god. <laughs> Just there cannot be a god if if this will play the way they do. 
Well, listen, but also, and we see Scotland are in the Euros. For yeah, the first I'm, time I'm in, in, in half a century I'm or something. as briefly as it's possible to be in the Euros, but you, you and I only watch this to, to see England lose against Germany on penalties in the great Absolutely. August tradition. Exactly, uh, and, and, and I, I think we're probably, we're probably set up for that too. And also the English team is quite good at the moment. So it's, well, it, that's when they always do badly, when, when they have talent. And it's a fatal mistake that English teams have made through the ages of, of putting talented players in the England side and expecting the team to be any good. But we'll, we'll see. I mean, for me, watching Scotland play football has always been up there with going to the dentists. And, you know, although that, that Archie Gemmell goal will live in immortal memory, I do need a kind of anaesthetic Archie to sit Gemmell. down and watch Scotland play. Peru? Against Peru, was it? It was Ni- Holland. It was 1978. Was it the Netherlands? It was way back when I was a, a teenager. And, uh, and that's it. That was the high point of Scotland's... Uh, footballing history, and it's been downhill ever since. Uh, but you know me, David, I'm more of a rugby man than a football man. It's funny you should mention sport because I nearly wrote a part of my new book about disaster. Which we will doom. talk about in a second, by the uh, way. Well, I'm doing, a, I'm doing an effortless segue. I nearly, <laughs> I wanted, I've never told anybody this, but I was going to write a chapter on great sporting disasters. And I had to drop it because it just seemed to the Americans to flip. I mean, obviously, there are very few sporting disasters in which there is excess mortality. A few football games, of course, have had that. But I wasn't so much interested in the great stadium disasters. I was interested in catastrophic sporting disasters that scarred the nation, like the Brazil uh, defeat to Germany when they were hosting the World Cup. Remember that Eight one? 8-1, wasn't it? 8-1. It was... I think it was, yeah. It was certainly, I mean, they stopped counting and, and any civilised team would have stopped scoring, but it was Germany. And then I, I was remembering the time Alan Ruff, who was the Partick Thistle goalkeeper, let in five against England when he was the Scotland keeper. So I was, I was contemplating having a, a, a sporting disasters chapter, which I think would probably have been the most popular chapter, but a bit like my chapter on alcohol, which would have been the seventh killer app of Western civilization. I bottled it. I just thought, no, th- this will confirm that you're not a serious person. So it'll just remain the unpublished Zamastat Not at chapter. all. Not at all. We can, we can, we can publish it together. I, I'll give you our sporting tragedies, of which we have many, many, many. And that, mind you, is from a nation that starts with very low expectations of anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neither Scotland nor Ireland are... Uh, burden with high expectations the real tragedies befall those who expect to win the world cup like our like our friends the sassanaks our friends the (laughs) sassanaks who always go into the world cup expecting to win it just as they always go into the rugby world cup expecting to win it and the six nations expecting to win it so i i think that the point i wanted to make in this unwritten chapter was that disasters that scar a nation don't necessarily involve mass death And it's perfectly possible for there to be mass death and it to be forgotten. Uh, I was kind of fascinated by the disasters that have just faded entirely from memory, like the great influenza epidemics of the 1950s. And yet there are these sporting disasters that, that people talk about for the rest of their lives. One problem about writing about Brazil's defeat at the hands of Germany was that nobody would talk about it. None of the players, uh, nor the coaching staff, 
are willing to speak about this event. There is almost no interview content that you can read. So it's hard actually to answer the question, why did they collapse? Uh, it's a very interesting I can question. Maybe because David Luiz was centre half. That's why I suspect they collapsed. Many Arsenal fans would agree with you. But many the Chelsea other fans would also agree with me. <laughs> many Paris Saint-Germain fans would agree with me. <laughs> but the other theory, of course, is that Neymar's injury meant that the team's core, the, the, the key hub in the network was gone and therefore the entire thing collapsed. I, like my last book was about networks and hierarchies and I had this great idea that I never put in the book, but it's kind of there in the talk, which was that it was kind of a network against a hierarchy and the Germans have a very hierarchical oh, discipline that's good. structure. Hold on, hold on, that is good. And that was is good. good. And the network was the Brazilian network was I, great is... until you took out Niemeyer and then the whole thing collapsed. So he was, was the node. Theory. He was the node yeah. around which the whole thing went. I, I was think just that's thinking, right. well, don't worry, we'll talk about your book in a second. I was just we thinking. We are kind of talking, kind about, of talking it, about it. Yeah. But I was and just, showing my sensitive side. You are showing your, and your football, your quite deep football knowledge, which is good for a man who's a rugby man. But I was thinking Come on, I, in the I grew context. Up in Glasgow. It was religion. We used to walk down the street with the football at our feet. We just, I mean, we played football like other people breathed. And I can't get my kids to think about football the same way because they think they have, this is America, they have to kind of dress up for soccer uh, with shin pads. I'm like, shin pads? I know. Shin pads, you're nine. You're yeah. nine. It's jumpers for goals and away we go. That's exactly. the old school. But I was thinking... I, I try, I've tried to bring that spirit to California, but it's very hard to <laughs> the do. jumpers for goals spirit. They want to professionalise them at age nine. I mean, it's extraordinary. I was thinking just when you said that about great national tragedies, because we'll talk about them. I'm wondering now whether or not the Roy Keane Saipan incident had a greater impact on the Irish psyche than the Good Friday Agreement. If they ask questions really go like there, that at university, think, would, you, would you not think enrolments in history courses would, would soar? Absolutely. But when, when has there ever been a question of that profundity in a Trinity College exam? I'll bet you never. But I, I do think sport is, is historically important and we shouldn't kind of marginalise it, especially since m most of the things that we think of as national identity today can be traced back to the emergence of national contests in the 19th century. And the whole idea of getting uh, Scotland to play England uh, at footy, that goes back to the time of Gladstone. Uh, and the first game, I think, if I'm remembering rightly, was in the 1870s. And Gladstone's son, I think, was in the Scotland team because they considered themselves Scots. And I think you kind of see that national identities like urban identities are very inseparable from the professionalization and the increasing importance of these spectator sports. And I also think that we, we find ourselves, our, our collective identities most readily when we're in stadiums full of people singing preferably. And that was all taken away from us last year, which was part of what made it disastrous. I mean, I find watching football without fans impossibly difficult. I can't yeah, really no, there's no point. It. I'm with you. There's no. no there's no point. I tell you, let's park this, okay? Because we are allegedly gonna talk about this tome. This I keep trying this, to uh, this, yet another Ferguson. Will you stop writing books every two years like this? Okay, but it's anyway, Neil, it's really good. I really like it. And it's an extraordinary combination of history and science and economics and politics. So look, hats off. It's 
it's it's it's a great work. And again, you mentioned your last one on networks and signals and the tar. I think I really enjoy that one. Really, really enjoy that one. But we could go back. I'm actually going to tell people the first time I met Neil Ferguson, he swanked into the Shelburne Hotel in about 2002. Sat down. I was to interview him, and he gave me a book on why the British Empire was a great thing. And I said, <laughs> I said, any man who strolls into the Constitution Room in the Shelburne <laughs> Hotel where our Constitution was signed with a tome telling me how, what did the Brits ever do for you? They did absolutely brilliant. I thought, he has chutzpah, he has balls. I tell you, I enjoyed that part of the book tour above all others. <laughs> I mean, sure. Maybe the India trip was up there, but, but telling the Irish about how Britain made the modern world and the benefits of the British Empire was... Yeah, that's, that, that takes us back to a time when you can make those arguments anywhere. Nowadays, if I made that argument on the Stanford campus, immediate cancellation would ensue. It's funny how arguments about empire 20 years ago, you could still have an argument about the costs and benefits. And with, with a reasonable chance of leaving Dublin alive, I mean, 50-50, I think it probably 50, 50, was. 50-50, yeah. But, I would say actually 60-40. <laughs> But no, I was going to hide behind you if the shooting started. But if um, if you make those arguments on an American campus today, you have 100% chance of cancellation because this is one of the neurologic points of uh, today's academia. You can't say anything good about empire because it was all slavery, exploitation, and racism. By, and by, the, way, by the way, Neil, it was. It's okay. Well, not all of it. That's not the point all of, of it. Costs and benefits. There was also kind of building infrastructure, dealing with the problem of infectious disease. I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating when I was writing both Empire and a book called Civilization was how clear it was that the great breakthroughs in dealing with infectious disease in the 19th and early 20th century came about because European empires could not function if their people were periodically wiped out by cholera or whatever it happened to be. So the argument of the book was not that there was no slavery and that there was no racism. Those things existed in abundance. But the puzzle for historians is that there were also these obvious and significant benefits, which increased lifespan and not just the lifespans of the colonizers. And that's the kind of argument that you and I could engage in. You're an economist, I'm an historian, but we could sit down and kind of think about costs and benefits and recognize that if an empire like the British Empire is doing a huge amount of infrastructure investment, which we're now in favor of, remember, then it can't have been 100% terrible. Uh, but that's not an argument that people want to have in academia today because they're not actually interested in economics at all. They'd rather just talk about how wicked uh, everybody was in the past. And that's an easy thing to say. I mean, clearly, they did not have our views on anything from gay rights to racial equity. They did not have the views of the 21st century. But to go back through history saying, oh, tut, tut, what dreadful, what a dreadful racist Winston Churchill was, that seems like the least interesting thing you can say about him. By the and, way, in yeah. my view, it's, the, it's way. the least interesting thing about the United States was that it had slavery in some states at its inception. I mean, there, there was slavery pretty much everywhere in the Americas and the Caribbean at that time. It would have been weird if there hadn't been any in those colonies. So I think part of what motivates me to write history these days is a sense that the vast proportion of academic historians are engaged in asking the wrong question or asking utterly uninteresting questions. And the interesting questions are, are quite different and often do lie in, in your territory of, of economics. No, they do, they do. And we could talk about why economists don't ask interesting questions, but that's a totally 
different game. That's, that's one for a few pints, and we'll have a natter about that. Let's talk about Doom, which is a particularly Scottish title, I thought. Uh, I, I yeah, you have to get that there's a certain humour to that word, at least where I come from. We're doomed was a catchphrase of my childhood. It was, uh, it was Private Fraser in Dad's Army who said that as a kind of caricature Scotsman. And I, I grew up using we're doomed ironically. So if you missed the bus, we're doomed. And doom sort of hangs over Glasgow, but we appreciate it with gallows humour. I mean, you know you're all doomed, whether it's when you play England or when finally the curtain comes down in your life, probably rather early because you were born in Glasgow and life expectancy is up there with Bangladesh. So we kind of, we deal with that problem with, with a lot of gallows humour. And I, I wrote this book with that spirit in mind, aware that it wouldn't really work in the United States where you're not supposed to make fun of death. At all. In fact, you're not supposed to use the word die. Remember, people here pass, David. We, we pass, pass when we're away. playing football. Yes, yes exactly. People pass. And I, I kind of always want to say died. We died, just to sort of see the shock I'm, on I'm, their faces. Neil, I'm glad that you're really adopting the customs of your adopted homeland so well. They're coming so naturally to you. <laughs> I'm blending in. You're blending in I'm perfect. Blending you're like the perfect the immigrant. You're, like, you're, like, you're the American dream. <laughs> You can't take Glasgow out of the man. And I, I wanted to write a book that kind of got at our weirdly ambivalent relationship to death, the fact that Americans don't even want to say the word, whereas Glaswegians like, even in the case of Billy Connolly, to make jokes about the crucifixion. I mean, my earliest introduction to humour was listening to Billy Connolly's famous monologue in which he imagines the, the passion of Christ taking place in Glasgow and, and the apostles it. being a gang. It's, a, it, it's one of the greatest achievements of modern comedy, almost unintelligible to people who are not Glaswegians, because in those days, he really did speak like the, uh, the Govan Akiri that he was. Uh, but it's a brilliant example of, of Glasgow humour, where you take something really traumatic and shocking and most powerful of all the images of Christianity, the crucifixion, and you make light of it. So I wanted to write a book that had a little bit of that spirit, which is why we get to Monty Python and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore early on. The fact that traditionally, at least, we've been able to make some lightness, some levity out of death, but we've sort of stopped doing that. And because we've stopped even talking about death, when a pandemic happens, everybody's kind of thrown into complete confusion. Either you're in total denial about it, nope, I'm not going to die. This is just the seasonal flu or it's the black death. I'm not leaving my home until there's a vaccine. And that, I think our wild overreactions or underreactions to the pandemic reflected our inability actually to think honestly about death. Now, Neil, you call it the politics of catastrophe, right? That's the, the book. It begins with you as sitting, flying around the world, doing your thing, then kind of denying that you could be a spreader of this then you get sick yourself. What you're trying to do is you're trying to evidence the idea that all of us have a very strange relationship with pandemics. And then you go on to talk about various different disasters. By the way, I love the history in it. I love the Vesuvius. I love all that sort of stuff in it. What's the essence of this latest Ferguson work? Give me the essence of it. The essence is that the great economist Amartya Sen was right when he said that famines are not natural disasters, they're man-made. And of course, an Irish audience will get the point immediately. 
But it's not just true of famines. In fact, the distinction between natural and man-made disasters is illusory. There are just disasters. And it really depends on human agency how many people die. That's why the subtitle is The Politics of Catastrophe, because, take COVID, the same virus, okay, there were variants, but it's the same basic virus, attacks every country. But in, in Taiwan, they've only just got above 100 dead. And in the United States, we're approaching 600,000. And you can't explain that by saying, oh, well, the Taiwanese are biologically different or the virus was in some way different. It's just not plausible. The realities are that it's politics that explains why there was such an enormous variance in outcomes around the world. And also explains why countries that were supposed to be really well prepared for disaster, the United States was supposedly the best prepared in 2019, ended up doing really badly. So that's the key takeaway. And it applies throughout history. Even the volcanoes, I mean, even if you go back to Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii, fit this pattern. Sure, it's not like people set off the volcano. That's a geological event. But why is it that we keep building towns, indeed very large cities, right next to volcanoes or on fault lines? If I show you a map of the world where all the big cities are and where all the geological fault lines are, and that was all you knew about humanity, you'd say, this interesting species enjoys earthquakes and likes to be close to them. So there's something strange going on that leads us to, to I think, almost invite Disaster. I'm sitting here near San Francisco, San Andreas Fault, not too far. At some point, there'll be a huge earthquake here. And I would say that our, our preparedness plan for this earthquake will be right up there with our pandemic preparedness plan. I'm sure it, it exists. I've never seen it, but there's probably 36 or more pages of earthquake preparedness plan in Sacramento at the state capitol. None of it will work, I promise you. And we'll be in as big a mess as we were uh, last spring when COVID hit. So why then, Neil, why the complacency then? Why this idea that, as you said, you know, we, we are prepared? Like the thing about COVID is that, you know, any number of biologists, epidemiologists were going around saying, this thing's going to happen. Something's going to emerge from somewhere and it's going to have a profound and universal effect. And yet when it happens, everyone's like, well, hold on a second, wait a while, let's see what's why the complacency? I mean, are there, t- you know, you talk about the American word takeaways, as you and I know it, a takeaway is a chipper, okay? You know, you know <laughs> somewhere where you go to get fed, right? But what are the lessons? Because again, you know, you're going back, you're going to the First World War, people didn't expect it to happen, then it did. In fact, I think one of the, one of, one of the pieces you wrote a long time ago now was that idea that even stock markets were operating until the very eve of the First World War. Yeah. But this idea that we are, prepared but complacent. Where does that come from? I think it's partly psychological. And I, I give the, the strange menagerie of the, the grey rhino and the black swan to explain this. So a grey rhino is something you see coming. It's coming across the Serengeti at you. And it's not moving that fast. So you definitely see it coming. The pandemic was like that. I, I lost count of the number of, of people who predicted pandemic in the last 20 years. I even did it myself. There's a line in The Great Degeneration that says, oh, by the way, there's probably going to be a pandemic. So everybody kind of knew that this was one of the big risks. We that didn't was more of exactly an insurance when. policy, though, wasn't it really? Well, no, I, I think it was something that if you thought about history at all, you knew, like an earthquake in California, it was going to happen, but you couldn't exactly say when. And then when it happens, 
despite all these predictions, everyone's shocked. I'm shocked that there could be a pandemic. It's unprecedented. It's not unprecedented. It's absolutely not. It's the least unprecedented thing. Plagues have been striking humanity since recorded history began in the time of Thucydides. So I think we have this ability to hold in our heads one at the same time that the gray rhino is approaching, but when it strikes, oh, it's a black swan. How completely unexpected. That's the psychological part of it. But the political part of it is that if you are a politician, and I learned this from Henry Kissinger of all people, you, you don't really have a strong incentive to act early. If you think there might be a disaster, and you know that early action could prevent it, 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 you still don't do it. Why not? Because there's a cost to that early action. There would have been a cost to suddenly shutting down the airports in January of 2020 and saying, that's it, no more international travel. And what would the benefit have been? Supposing you'd successfully averted a pandemic, nobody would thank you. There would be nobody saying, oh, it's, it's lucky we did that because Otherwise, 3.3 million people have died. There is no gratitude for an averted catastrophe in politics. So democratic leaders are very disincentivized to take early costly action that might avert disaster. They're much more incentivized to kick the can down the road and say, well, eh, it might be bad, but it might not. Let's hope it's not. So, so that's what happened. I think in, in all of the different capitals of the world, there was a similar conversation where there would be somebody... In, in the US, it was Matt Pottinger in the Situation Room going, this is a freaking pandemic. Millions of people are going to die. We have to do something. And then there was the other guy on the other side of the room, Larry Kudlow, going, but Mr. President, there's, there's a, there'd be a recession if we did that and we have an election to win in just a matter of months. And then that kind of conversation was happening everywhere. And so the temptation was, well, let's just see if it's the seasonal flu and we can decide. If it's not, then we can decide what to do. But of course, if you do that, it's too late. By the time you realize oh shit, it's not the seasonal flu, it's everywhere. And you are then faced with much worse choices. And we ended up with these drastic measures we call lockdowns. That was because we'd blown the opportunity back in January to take early action. So the kind of the Kiwis were right in one way, is what you're saying. You know, yeah, I think, I think the Kiwis were copying the Taiwanese who were the most right. And the Taiwanese who'd thought a lot about how China could mess with them had realized that one obvious way was with a worse form of SARS, less lethal, more contagious. So they had a kind of plan for that, but they also, they also just didn't believe the Chinese, which is a pretty good strategy, actually. When the Chinese say, no human-to-human -human transmission, nothing to worry about, that's the moment that you stop the planes landing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I want to talk to you about China. Actually, I didn't didn't expect we'd get there, but normally, like your your our conversations get go all over the shop. Um, one of the interesting things I've noticed, I was just reading some sort of Pew research, was the global impression of China has deteriorated profoundly in almost every country since Wuhan. There is a sense that China has emerged unmasked, let's say, out of this, and that and Taiwan is the epicenter of this. And it's quite interesting yeah. you say the Taiwanese have a very long tradition and sensible tradition in not believing what comes out of Beijing. What do you think will be some of the more long-term geostrategic legacies of COVID? And specifically with relation to China. Well, I think Cold War II had already begun before COVID struck. I was making that argument in early 2019. The argument that the US and China were on a collision course, and it was increasingly resembling the Cold War, ideologically, geopolitically, technologically, because the Cold War was, the first Cold War was in many ways a technology race in which the Soviets tried their best to keep up and, and, and use all kinds of espionage to do that. And China has been doing that for years. So I was making this argument, but not getting very far with it because the default setting in most US conversations was, yes, but we're far more economically interdependent than we ever were with the Soviet Union, so this can't be the Cold War. And my response was, well, you just watch. And the Chinese then beautifully uh, proved that they are a totalitarian regime with all the pathologies of the Soviet Union in the way that they utterly mishandled the outbreak in Wuhan, which was like Chernobyl, only with germs, only with a virus, and far, far more disastrous for the world than Chernobyl was. So I, I think you're right. The Pew Research, which was back in October, showed that not only in the United States, but all over the developed world, sentiment towards China, and particularly towards Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, has deteriorated drastically in the last year or so. And I think with good reason, because the way that China handled the outbreak, and then the way they tried to bend the narrative with very aggressive so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, where they would go around saying, oh, no, 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 the virus originated in the United States. Or, no, 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 we're actually going to save you. This is not our fault. We're actually the ones with the PPP. We're, we're the ones with the vaccines. We're going to give these vaccines to the world. That also pissed people off, especially in Europe, because I think there was this moment of truth when people thought, oh, we thought these guys were our economic partners and we were going to all join the Belt and Road Initiative. Actually, this is a one-party totalitarian state, and it kind of fits with what they're doing in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. And everybody had a kind of moment of truth. Now, I think others had got there earlier. The Australians kind of figured this out a while back, and it was partly going to Australia that had made me see, ah, this is Cold War II. But I think the rest of the world caught up last year. The question is now what happens? I mean, the thing about Cold Wars is, at first, a lot of people are in denial about it. Did, did you know that George Orwell used that phrase, Cold War? first. He was the no, first to do it in 1945. I didn't, I didn't know that. And it was in an article in Tribune. And he said, uh, Cold War is here because there will be three great nuclear empires. He predicted China would be one of them. And nuclear empires will all be slave states. This was 
in a way that the rough draft of 1984. Anyway, when Orwell said that, hardly any Americans believed it. And when, when Churchill then said at Fulton, Missouri, there's an iron curtain, most people actually dismissed that. When did the penny really drop? It wasn't, I think, until the Korean War. So the Cold Wars only really become visible to most people when they're hot. Yes. And I think the big worry for me looking ahead to next year is that kind of on course for a war over Taiwan. I mean, to my eyes as an historian, it's all there. Taiwan is everything. It's like a cross between Berlin, Cuba, and Kuwait. It's just strategically vitally important. And economically, it's where the semiconductor industry has its kind of mecca, the cutting edge of, of semiconductor research is TSMC, the Taiwanese company. The Chinese have a claim to it. They insist that we all have to pretend it belongs to them, even though it's a totally functioning independent uh, democracy. And the US is committed to defending it under 1979 legislation. It seems to me that the Chinese think the US is kind of finished. And the, the general prevailing view in Beijing is they're done, they're washed up. Look what a shambles it was last year. They're never going to do anything. And we're the winner. We are the masters now. So let's just do it while we have the chance. I, I think that's the classic kind of misreading of the other side that leads to strategic risk. And the US, if China does make a move against Taiwan, will really have no choice but to take action. Otherwise, it would be game over for American primacy. So if you're asking what's the next disaster, my answer is not climate change. I mean, that's something to worry about, but it's actually a relatively slow burn, if you'll forgive the pun, compared with a war. I mean, a war would be like instantaneous burn and on a much larger scale than recent wars we've seen. And do you think that the Chinese will just test Biden? Are they thinking they're thinking miles beyond Biden? They basically say Taiwan is our country. We have this manifest destiny to get it back and we're going to risk everything to do so. Because it's, I mean, basically they, they risk global sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is not, this is not a small piece of the jigsaw. This is, this is the crucial piece. Xi Jinping said explicitly, this is his ultimate goal. And this is why he's extended his tenure at the head of the Communist Party and as president. I think they're, they're not seeing it as a, a massive gamble because they're quite, confident that the US won't go to war over it. And they base this, I'm, I'm sure, on intelligence that tells them that in all the war games that the Pentagon has done, the last 20 war games, that the US can't win. Because the balance of military advantage has really shifted since the 1990s, when you could send you know, aircraft carriers to Taiwan Strait, and that was it, the Chinese would fold. Now, if you send those aircraft carriers, the Chinese have land-based missiles that can sink them. And so for the U.S. to send a massive naval force to prevent or reverse the invasion of Taiwan would, would be a huge American gamble. So both sides would be taking gambles. And I think what typically causes big wars is when each side thinks the other side won't take that gamble. So the U.S. view, if you talk to people in Washington, is, well, that would be very risky. I don't think Xi Jinping will do that. Well, the Chinese will also tell you that it would be very risky for Biden to send uh, aircraft carriers Remind you of anything? Well, it reminds me of the outbreak of a lot of, of major wars. The US problem is it can't really, at this point, credibly deter China because it doesn't really have the military capacity to do that. This is something that everybody kind of knew during the Trump administration when there was a lot of tough talk. But Taiwan privately, Trump admitted he could not defend. There's this famous bit in John Bolton's book where Trump says, well, you know, it's just like the Sharpie. You know, Taiwan's the Sharpie and, and China's the desk. And, and so he would not 
and clearly would not have gone to war over Taiwan. The problem the Biden people have is that in the election campaign last year, they had to be tougher on China than Trump. They took that decision. They told Biden, don't be nice about China, be tough on China. A lot of the people in the administration who were in the Obama administration before, like Kurt Campbell or Jake Sullivan or, or Tony Blinken, they all kind of were mugged by reality back then, and they're now much more hawkish on China. So oddly enough, this administration is is more hawkish, not only rhetorically, but also in substance than the Trump administration was. And that's why I'm kind of reminded of other democratic administrations through history that came in with bold domestic agendas. This goes all the way back to Woodrow Wilson, but ended up in big wars. So that's that's kind of, I don't think it's a, a 75% probability, yet, but I say there was a sort of 20% probability that we end up with the Taiwan crisis next year. Wow. And what I want to do then is switch, because we started, because the Taiwan crisis will suck everybody in. Everyone will have to take sides. It will recalibrate the world. Whose side are you on? The Chinese side and the American side, and the, the West versus the rest, almost. Uh, another issue, and I'm going to, I'm going to conclude here. I didn't expect to go there, but we started in, in, in Glasgow's East End, Govan. One of the other big issues close to your heart is Scottish independence. We've talked about events that are happening. This is a heavily predictable event. There's, there's, there's nobody saying this is a black swan, nor a grey rhino. This is something that is very, very close at hand. What's your feeling about it? I was in favour of it when I was about 15, uh, going way back to the, the devolution uh, referendum of 79. And I remember getting into a fist fight over the issue. So I think 15 is about the right age to be a Scottish nationalist. And, and most uh, uh, sensible people uh, should grow out of it after that point, as I did. And I, I subsequently came to realize that the, the benefits of, of independence would be modest and the costs really very high. I'm temperamentally these days and have been since I was an undergraduate, a, a unionist who thinks that that Scotland has gained uh, hugely from its partnership with England. It has a completely different relationship to England from Ireland because we really took over England when James I, or rather James VI, became James I. And then, you know, then they kind of bailed us out in 1707 with the Union of Parliaments. But if you read, as I've been doing in the last, in the last year, Walter Scott, who kind of saw the English-Scottish relationship with great clarity and insight. It's a very different relationship from the Irish-English one. And if we start telling ourselves, as the Scottish nationalists have been doing for many years, oh, no, no, we're just in the same situation as the Irish, the English have been terrible to us. A, it's historically completely untrue. And B, I think it's a pathway to a pretty bad economic as well as political future. I do not trust the SNP. They tell you, oh, we'll be Ireland or, oh, we'll be a Baltic or, or Scandinavian country. But when I look at the way the SNP runs Scotland, it makes me think much more of the Balkans. And it's like, you know, be Serbia with Nicola Sturgeon. So I, I think it's a bad idea economically for reasons that you and I kind of know by heart. It'd be very difficult for Scotland to live difficult. without the pretty substantial it could be done, transfers. But it would be difficult. It would be, it would be, it would be much more costly than, than Brexit has been to the UK. But I think the politics is what I find off-putting. My sense is that when 
uh, the SNP is whipping up anti-English sentiment, there's something kind of phony about it. Because actually Scotland is much more culturally like England than it was when I was growing up in the 1970s. So there isn't actually this huge difference that we're constantly being told. I mean, it was a great lie that Scotland had a better handle on COVID than England, though the SNP kept claiming it. The outcomes were actually more or less the same if you allow for the more dense population of England. So I'm I'm a guinea. And I also think, David, that although it seems like a grey rhino, it'll turn out to be a kind of wee grey dog and it won't even bark. It'll be Quebec. At some point, I think if Boris Johnson has his head screwed on, which of course I don't think he does, but if he did, he would do what the Canadians did to the the Quebecois and, and really call their bluff and make it just a little bit harder than have a referendum. As long as 50.1% 50.1% of people say, yes, bingo, it's the end of the UK. You've got to raise the bar higher than that, which is what they did in Canada. And as a result, Quebec independence has just faded away. And I, I think that will be ultimately what happens, because I think it's a lot like Quebec, a lot of talk. But when it comes to the crunch, it'll be very hard to get more than 50% of people to vote for it. Now, it's interesting you mentioned Quebec. My first day ever in Quebec was... I arrived in Montreal as, I think, a 17-year-old student, emigrant, illegal, all that stuff, looking for a job. And it was the funeral of a guy called René Lévesque. René Lévesque was their great mm-hmm. nationalist hero. Yeah. And I was, as an Irish person in the 80s, thinking, wow, this, is, this fascinates me. But maybe the difference, and I want to I end in Britain, and this, our part of the world, right? Ireland, Britain, Scotland, whatever. The difference was that Canada was not nationalist, that Ontario was not nationalist. Ontario was all through those Parizeau sort of early 1990s referenda on Quebec, very reasonable, very Canadian, if you will, very, we will accommodate you. The England post-Brexit is a different beast. It's a nationalist beast. It's, it's not the country that you and I recognise from our childhood. To what extent do you think just one nationalism is feeding off the next? Maybe. I think one of the most striking things about recent polling is that the English don't care. I mean, they, they actually don't care if Ireland is, uh, is unified. And they really don't care if Scotland becomes independent. It's not kind of uh, little England or nationalism that I wor- worry about. It's just the indifference to the Celtic periphery. They don't care about Northern Ireland at all. And if you tell them Scotland wants to be independent, like, OK, whatever. You know, we don't really care about them because they're a b- bunch of wankers, aren't they? And that's the attitude that you encounter in, in the pubs in London uh, that, that might, to my mind, is more likely to bring about the breakup of, of the UK or, or leave just England with Wales because the Welsh will never go all the way. My sense is that these nationalist stories that the media love to tell aren't really the point. The point is that the English don't care. And as long as that's true... Why would Boris Johnson really sit down and think hard about how to how to deal with this? I mean, getting shot of Scotland has some appeal from an English Tory point of view. It never was after the 1950s, uh, much of a source of, of, of votes for the Conservatives. So, yeah, I think many political disasters, and I think this would be a political disaster, happen not because of great passions, but but actually because of apathy and indifference. A very powerful force, uh, though underestimated in history. And just before we go, Neil, we've kicked off talking about you rocking into the Constitution Room with your uh, tome about the great empire under your love, 
and trying to explain to me how the British Empire was great. But what I'm thinking of now is that, is this just the end of the British Empire? Is this what we're seeing now? Yeah, I think the, the thing about empires is that they, they can die fast or they can die slowly. The Soviet Empire died pretty fast. The British Empire has died slowly, not as slowly as as the Portuguese, which really took a long time to expire. But it's it's been a, a slow death, and, and we've kind of lived through it. Uh, when I was born in 1964, there was still quite a lot of it left, and much of my life was... Uh, was watching the the remaining pieces go. So I, I think you're right. And, and I think post-imperial trauma is more severe if you lose your empire fast. The Russians, and this is part of explaining Putin, haven't really got over the fact that they went from superpower to balalaika republic very fast. I think the English have come to terms far more than the rest of the world realizes with not being an empire, with just being a medium-sized state. And I think part of that process is also stopping caring about about the union. To an extent, and it's worth ending on this note maybe, to an extent people forget that Scots really drove that empire process. The Scots were far more involved in the empire than the English were. They're far more likely to be, name a colony, running the East India Company. They were far more likely to be in the Caribbean. They were far more likely to emigrate uh, to the, the colonies of settlement. And so Scotland was the empire state Glasgow considered it the second itself to be the second city of the empire. So I think these two things go hand in hand. The empire goes, the appeal of being in the union sinks for the Scots. And the English, once they've lost the empire, are less committed to the union itself. It's a strange kind of process of dissolution. And I wonder where, where it ultimately ends. Maybe England ends up breaking up and we're dealing here with some process of, of fission, political fission. But um, but yeah, I, I I think the the key takeaway from doom about about political structures is that they're not set in in stone. There's nothing divinely ordained about national borders. Most nation states today are of quite recent origin, came out of the period of decolonization, and we shouldn't be totally surprised if if the United Kingdom breaks up or if Ireland is reunified. It, these things can happen faster than you expect, a bit like financial crises, and uh, sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes it's no biggie. I mean, does it, did it matter if Czechia and Slovakia split? No, no consequences, no problem. Did it matter when India and Pakistan split? Catastrophic, enormous numbers of people die. So you can't, you can't dismantle states and assume there'll be no cost. Uh, there can be very much higher costs than you expect. Neil Ferguson, we will leave it there. And uh, I'll see you over here soon. I look forward to it. And I'm sure we'll find all kinds of new things to argue about in that pub when we finally sit down for a pint of Guinness each. Absolutely, Neil. Listen, take care of yourself. Cheers, David. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.